if you've lived in the trenches, if you've done the homework, done the studying, done the reading, and you were able to manifest that conviction because it's something you've personally experienced, all of a sudden, it's not selling anymore, right? It's just, it's just what you do. So that's my, my piece of advice is if, if people are afraid to sell, it may be that you're selling the wrong thing and you're selling it in the wrong way, right? You have to manifest it as though it is something deep and personally connected to you. Then you'll be successful. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I am your host, Nikki Baloo. And boy, do we have an incredible, amazing guest lined up for you today. He is a repeat guest. He was so good the first time we had to have him back again. And he is truly one of the world's experts, thought leaders in the area of selling and specifically Selling from the heart. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary founder of Cerebral Selling, David Premer. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, Nikki. It's great to be with you again. Pleasure. Awesome to have you, my man. So, David, our listener is a man or a woman who basically has a dream to make a difference for people. They do what they do because they see that they've been given a gift by God, and this gift can help alleviate suffering for the people that they look to serve. And they listen to this podcast because they want to learn from you, our expert guest, how you have come to hone your skills, not only in delivering your genius, but also turning it into a brilliant, beautiful, money-making commercial enterprise. So David, tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great David Premer? Oh my goodness. Well, I don't know how I'm going to live up to all of this amazing interview you've given me, my friend. <laughs> I really appreciate it. No, I mean, you know, my medium is sales. And I'm sure there's a lot of folks listening to the podcast now who are uh, salespeople. I, I do believe everyone is in sales, but, uh, but certainly they could be in a sales career. And like most people in sales, I got into sales by accident. And this is part of the <laughs> important part of the backstory. I feel we all get into sales by accident because we don't teach it in school and it's a fairly accessible job for most people. So like most people, I got into sales by accident. I started my career actually about 20 years ago as a research scientist of all things, doing graduate to work in engineering and ended up getting into uh, technical sales as a sales engineer during the turn of the dot-com boom, where all of these tech companies were just hiring people to work at, uh, at their organizations to grow the business. And that's where I first caught the sales bug. And I'll, I'll kind of do a bit of a yada, yada, yada now. 20 years later, I have worked at four uh, tech startups. Three of the startups ended up getting acquired. One IPO'd. Uh, the third startup, which I helped found in 2008 was acquired by a very big uh, tech company called Salesforce, which is kind of you know where where the Super Bowl oh, of sales huge. happens. 
huge company. And, you know, it, it's amazing. When I joined them through the acquisition, they were 6,000 employees. And when I left five years later, they were 24,000 employees and even bigger now. And uh, just amazing experience learning how the sales machines were built at scale. But for me, because of my science and engineering background, I was always a very curious person. And we'll, uh, you know, I think we, it's, it, it begs talking to, not in this very segment, what we can talk about as we go through, is that how do you identify the trends and patterns in your own career to figure out what you should be doing? Because sometimes it takes time. And I was always a very curious person. Uh, and I saw the world of sales almost like kind of like a scientific system, an engineering system. There were rules and patterns, but those rules and patterns changed over time. And I became hooked. And so after 20 years in the trenches in sales and sales leadership at these tech companies, I said, you know what? There's nothing I'd love to do with the second half of my career than teach the art and science of modern selling for this profession that I've fallen in love with. You know what, David? As you know, I believe very strongly that the noblest people in our society are its salespeople. Because sales to me is an act of love. Sales to me is an act fraught with risk. When you go out there and you sell, you're actually opening up your heart. You're making yourself vulnerable and you're saying to people, hey, here I am, warts and all, ready to serve you. Do you like me? Do you love me? Do you love what I have to say? And so many times you get rejected and rejection hurts. Rejection is painful. And so for you to be someone who's willing to go sell, you need to be brave, you need to be courageous, and you need to love and care about people. Because if you don't have a desire to help people, you can't be successful selling. And I know you agree with me on this, David. I do. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think when when sales is done correctly, and to your point, from the heart with authenticity and high conviction, and you can hear the passion in the other person's voice, it is the best profession in the world. But there's, it's not like being a doctor or an accountant where there's a, you know, a licensing body in, in schools and education people go to. Anyone can be in sales. And unfortunately, it's the, you know, when you, when you use the word sales or selling, and I, I borrow from one of my favorite sales books, it's a book called To Sell as Human by Dan Pink. Mm -hmm. And a great read for anyone who's interested, not just in, you know, salespeople, but it's kind of, it's how it sounds, humanizes the world of sales. When he did this uh, survey, when he asked people, he said, you know, when I use the word sales or selling, what's the first word that comes to mind? And he found that 80% of the words that people use to describe salespeople were, were uh, negative, strongly negative, pushy, sleazy, those kinds of words. And we've all had, unfortunately, even us, me, you, we've all had experiences with those types of sellers because they didn't sell from the heart. They didn't sell with conviction. They didn't believe in what they were doing and they did it unscrupulously. And unfortunately, those sellers uh, not, are not only unsuccessful, obviously, in their careers, but they ruin it for everyone else. They ruin mm -hmm. it for the good sellers. And so I agree with you when it is done in an authentic way. And, and you'll find oftentimes, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people listening here on, on the podcast are not, don't consider themselves, oh, they're in sales per se, but certainly if they're a thought leader, they're selling their thoughts every day. You know, think about in your everyday life, someone asks you for a recommendation of a, you know, an article of clothing, a car, a place to go on vacation, an electronic device, whatever it is. And when you love that thing that they're, they're asking you about, you can speak about it with high degree of conviction, with high passion, and you are selling. And so the idea is that the best sellers can put themselves 
in that state of flow when what they are selling is something that they genuinely uh, believe in. And those are the ones that, you know, you see that, uh, that are doing it the right way. You know, that's really well said, my friend. That's really well said. And the challenge for a lot of people in our industry of thought leadership, right? A lot of people, you know, for them, they might even think, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not quite a thought leader yet, but they might be in the coaching or consulting game, right? On their way to becoming a thought leader. The very idea of selling scares them for all the reasons that you said. And they don't want to be thought of as a slimy, sleazy, pushy salesperson, right? And that's unfortunately what's given sales a bit of a bad rap because historically, that's what people have associated with salespeople, right? But things have changed in the last 10, 15 years, haven't they, David? Why don't you expand a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the game has changed a ton. And one of the reasons why, you know, when you think about a negative experience, people say, like, what is the stereotypical worst negative experience that people would have with a salesperson? A lot of people conjure up these images of the sleazy used car salesman. That's what people, the sleazy used car salesman. Now, I would say the sleazy used car salesman existed in a completely different time. So think about it. When you went to go buy that used car, you didn't know at that time, you didn't know if the car that you were buying was a, was a peach or a lemon, so they say. You know, you didn't know if it was good or bad. The dealer could have dressed it up, polished it nice, and it looked like a good car. And there was no way for you to know because that existed in a time where, as Dan Pink calls it, uh, information uh, asymmetry existed. You know, sellers and buyers had different pieces of information. And even when I started, you know, in my sales career 20 years ago, we were selling a web-based solution, which was kind of, you know, new at the time. There was, the web was a thing. The web had been around for some time, but there were no like review sites. You couldn't necessarily even go into like a Google, which I don't even know existed at the time and type in, you know, Nikki Baloo reviews and, and saw what come, came up. That didn't exist. And so that idea of information asymmetry, you know, has persisted for quite some time. Nowadays, right, there's what we call information parity. If you want to go on vacation, buy a device, buy a car, whatever you want to buy, not only can you find reviews and, and peer curated information on that, that, that particular product or service, but, you know, the, the, it's so accessible, right? You know, it can almost falls in your lap. And so that is kind of been taken away. So the, the power of the seller in terms of manipulating information, you know, the unscrupulous ones, has completely gone away. Uh, buyers are a lot more motivated to hear what other buyers like them say to the point where, you know, some, they, they, when they engage with a sales rep, they're already, you know, 70, 80, 60, whatever you want, very far into the sales process. So when you think about kind of the, the sales environment that gave rise to uh, that very poor experience, a lot of those factors are not in place today. And so I believe that the poor sellers will be weeded out with increased efficiency in the modern selling era. But it's been really interesting because it's also changed the game. It's also forced sellers to change the way they sell and become a lot more consultative and helpful because they know their customers are coming in a lot more uh, armed and knowledgeable than they have been before. That's all bang on. And a lot of what you're saying applies to sales organizations that are large companies. And I wonder how we can bring this down for the person that's probably listening to this podcast episode right now, who tends to be a solopreneur or maybe has one or two people working with them, right? These folks 
David, many of them love delivering their genius to their customers, but they hate selling. They hate the process of looking for clients. They hate the process of sitting down in front of a client. They hate, dare I say it, asking for the sale. So how do we convince that individual who's listening to this episode, hey, there's a way for you to be effective, successful, and love selling? Yeah. Well, you know, I would say the first, and this is something I, you know, I see a lot is this idea of like, just choose something. If you're going to sell something, you have to choose something that you're passionate about. And the example I often give, you know, when I have, I have three kids. I know you have kids too, Nikki. And when my kids come to me and they're about to ask me for something, like usually like for money or for permission to do something that they're afraid that I'm going to say no to, <laughs> I can, <laughs> you know what I mean? Totally. I can tell. I can tell that when they first open their mouth, right, that what's about to come out. And it's very off-putting. Now, children are amazing because there's no filter, right? Like they don't have the sophistication that grown-ups do. And so they are emotionally encumbered by the action they're about to take, right? They're afraid that the person's going to say no or what they're asking for is not reasonable and all these kinds of things. And it manifests in their tone and their approach. And Unfortunately, I still see a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of thought leaders out there who don't necessarily believe in what they're saying and what they're pushing. They picked an idea that they thought would be a good business idea. They thought there was a need in the market. It was a business need that maybe they didn't see or experience themselves, but they said, hey, you know what? There's people who need A, B, and C. I could be the person to do that. And so when they quote unquote sell, they become emotionally encumbered. They don't really fully believe in the value of what they're doing. They don't really know what the, the, the kind of the, the certainty and the outcome they are creating for their customers is, and they become emotionally encumbered. So like th- that would be my first piece of advice is choose something that you're passionate about. Choose something that you've had personal experience in. You know, to, to, if I were to give you a very simple analogy. So as part of my academic training, and I, I, t- I talk about this every now and then, I became a certified meteorologist of all things, right? So let the jokes about forecast accuracy. I never knew that about you, brother. No, you didn't, you didn't know that. Yeah. So it was, I was doing an undergrad degree in uh, chemistry and atmospheric science. And it was just, you know, if I, whatever courses I was taking, if I just took this other one or two courses, I, I, I met all the criteria for this meteorology certification. And uh, a really good friend of mine was in my program. There was only two of us. And his name is Chris Scott, and he's the chief meteorologist of the Weather Network here in Canada now. So shout out to Chris. And, you know, in the meteorology gig, there is this kind of divide between what they call meteorologists and broadcasters. So when you see the weather, you're listening to the weather, you're watching the weather on TV, the person who is delivering the weather could just be a weather person, right? Weatherman, weather girl, whatever you want to call it. They could just be a, a broadcaster reading the weather, and they became knowledgeable about the weather because they just did it so often. But they're not a scientist. They didn't study weather in school. They don't know all the necessary, you know, all the kind of the background and so on. And so this idea of like, are you a broadcaster or are you the meteorologist? Because a broadcaster is someone who chooses a business idea that sounds good and delivers it over and over again. And for the first like little while, you don't really have necessarily the conviction and the passion needed to convert customers. And so it feels like, quote unquote, you know, dirty selling. If you are a meteorologist, if you've lived in the trenches, if you've done the homework, done the studying, done the reading, and you are able to manifest that conviction because it's something you've personally experienced, all of a sudden, it's not selling anymore. 
right? It's just, it's just what you do. So that's my, my piece of advice is if, if people are afraid to sell, it may be that you're selling the wrong thing and you're selling it in the wrong way, right? You have to manifest it as though it is something deep and personally connected to you. Then you'll be successful. I love that analogy, man. Broadcaster versus meteorologist. It's really, really good. So that's true in a lot of cases, but there's a lot of people in the game of thought leadership who really are good at what they do. They really, really amazing expertise. I run into this all the time, David. You know what I mean? And yet they still are not effective at selling. They're still able to get past that fear of being thought of as a slimy salesman or a slimy sales girl. Let me say that again. Slimy salesman or <laughs> slimy sales girl. I got to say that fast 30 times, right? Yeah. So what do you say to that man or to that woman who's really good at what they do, but they're so deathly afraid of the process of selling? Yeah. So there's a lot of actually some really helpful, you know, what I call messaging tactics that I teach, you know, in my training curriculum to my clients that any thought leader can use as well. And, and part of the challenge when people get all wrapped up and they don't like the feeling of selling, it's because they're, they're too wrapped up in the mechanics. They're like, okay, like, what do I, what do I say? And when someone says like, what is it that you do? How should I respond? And I tend to go and, and describe what it actually is I do. Well, I help married men with this area of their life, or I help business people figure out A, B, and C. And and it becomes very tactile, very in the trenches, very low level. And people can sometimes react as though it's like a pitch, right? Their, their clients kind of react as though it's a pitch and it becomes very off-putting and it gives kind of feedback back to the thought leader to say, yeah, maybe I'm not, this is, I don't know if this is really landing. And then there's this kind of spiral where then they say, well, it feels like I'm selling. I don't want to do that anymore. And so the question is, how do you sell without selling, right? How do you manifest that conviction? And you know, we don't have time to get into kind of everything here on the uh, on the podcast, but you know, one of the tactics that I teach and I use a ton is what I call the belief statement. And rather than when someone says, "Well, what is it that you do?" right? Rather than telling them what you do on a, in a in a kind of very tactical way, oh, I train salespeople, right, or I give public speaking talks, right? Like people don't care about that. Think about what you do in the context of a belief statement. So start your, when I say, what is it that you do, Nikki? Start your response with, well, you know, at my company or what I believe is. At my company, we believe. I believe that. And then go from there. And your belief statement should be, it should be simple. It should point to a, a specific, well-understood problem. It should not mention your products or services directly, but it should be something that your target audience would be smiling and nodding to and saying, yes, tell me more about this. So for example, you know, one of the, the great examples, I, uh, I love all these examples from the tech community. There was a company uh, called Trunk Club based in Chicago. They were acquired by Nordstrom. And what they actually did, if you said, what, what do you do? They would say, well, you know, we, um, we are a service for men who they come onto our website, they give us all their physical measurements, and every month we send them a box of clothing that we think that they're going to like. And whether you know they, they decide to keep certain things, they give back certain things, and we call it Trunk Club, right? And it's kind of like a cl clothing of the month club, right? And people would smile and say, oh, like, that's nice. But if you phrase it in a different way, if you said, and this is what they led with, they said, you know, at Trunk Club, we believe that men want to look good, but they hate to shop, right? Now, all of a sudden, you're not selling. You're not describing what you do. You're describing why you do it. You're creating that emotional connection with your target customer. 
Mm. And that's one of the easiest ways to not only sell, but sell in a way that is high conviction and low emotional distress, low emotional encumbrance. It does not trigger that gene, right? And so think about what you do in terms of the belief statement. I like this. Okay, let me try this out with you, David, since I'm here. At East Circle Academy, we believe that great coaches and consultants love to grow their business, but they hate to sell. There you go. That's awesome. And so the other piece that worked really well in what you just described, and I've kind of intentionally baked it in, is this idea of polarization, this idea of picking an enemy. Who is the enemy of your business? And your enemy is our thought leaders who hate to sell, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you hate this. And if, and if the person out there listening to this is like, yes, I am a thought leader and I hate to sell. I am a man who wants to look good, but I hate to shop, right? Then you are going to go out there and you'll be like, yes, t- tell me more. And the idea behind selling isn't to convince someone that they should buy your product or service. It's to, especially at the outset, to get them to lean in and say, tell me more about this. Yes, I do want to look good. I hate to shop. Oh, I, I do have a passion, but I do hate to sell. How, how can I get this message out there? Right, and, and then you say, well, great, let me tell you. And then you've earned the right to tell them the next statement, right? And before you know it, you are quote unquote, selling without selling. My God, that was genius, brother. That was genius. Okay, so imagine that we're doing this for, let's pick uh, a particular type of thought leader. Um, a health and fitness coach. So how would they say it? Something like at uh, ABC Fitness, we know that new dads want to look great, but they have no time to go to the gym. Bingo. That's right. And now those dads, are, they're like, yes, I do want to look great. I don't feel I have a lot of time to go to the gym. Man, there's a lot of stuff going on. Tell, you have a solution to this? Tell me more. Right That's now, obviously, <laughs> you yeah, have yeah. to be able to you have to be able to solve it at the end of the day. But those 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 uh, polarizing statements they create contrast. And I have lots of content on my website and, and YouTube channel that's totally free. People can go check out. But this idea of of, of polarizing statements, contrasting statements, belief statements. You know, the, the example I always give, do you ever watch the show Seinfeld, Nikki? Oh, it's one Back of my favorite day? shows of all time. Are you kidding oh, me? It's, okay. it's, it's Teresa's favorite show of all time. <laughs> it's a classic and it's, you know, how 26 years, 20, 20, almost 30 years old, probably now. One of my favorite episodes, there was an episode. So there, for those of you in, in the audience who remember, there was a show on in the 90s called Melrose Place. It was a spinoff. Oh, yeah, I remember Melrose Place. <laughs> of a show called Beverly Hills 90210. And, <laughs> and in there was a Seinfeld episode where he was dating a police officer. And the police officer was kind of razzing about liking Melrose, Melrose Place. Melrose Place, like, I know. Yeah, like, do you, like, you watch Melrose Place? He's like, no, I don't watch Melrose. You would never admit to watching Melrose Place. And she's like, it's okay. You can, well, you, if you want to, if you like Melrose Place, by all means, you should say, you know, you, you like it. He's like, no, 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 I, I never watch it. She's like, you know, I could put you on the, the polygraph, the lie detector, and we can see if, <laughs> you know, you go, all lie. right, all right, I watch Melrose Place. <laughs> well, so what does he do? He's all nervous about this lie detector test. So he goes to his best friend, George Costanza, and he says to, if you remember this episode, he says to George, George, you're the best liar I know. Teach me how to lie like you. 
right? And uh, George Costanza is like, look, my friend, I can't, I can't teach it. It's like it's going like going to Pavarotti and saying, teach me to sing like you. It can't be done. But here's the trick. And if you remember this from the episode, he said, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. Not a lie if you believe it. And the idea behind that, and this is I'm going to bring it back to what we're talking here about thought leadership and selling, is that if you can deliver an idea, a a pitch, a solution with high conviction because you have anchored your talk track on something that you so deeply believe in, not only will it come out in a very passionate, empowered, and high uh, conviction and convincing way, but you will not be emotionally encumbered when you deliver it. And so I always think about like these belief statements, these contrasts, these polarizing statements as something that you manifest, you're basically, you're hanging your hat on because it's so deeply rooted in your psyche, in your belief system that a lie detector, and certainly customers are amazing lie detectors, um, it, would, it would never get triggered, right? You have to anchor your belief so deeply in what you do and the value add to your customers that, that they see that, they feel it. That's genius. And you know what? Um, Mark von Muser, who you met when you attended our, our event in October 2017, talks about the importance of conviction when you are with a potential client. And conviction is everything. Your conviction is actually necessary for your potential client to see because that's going to give them confidence that your solution's the right one. Now, that's not important just for you making the sale. That's actually important for them to believe in the solution so that when they do make the buying decision to go with the solution, that level of conviction gets transferred to them and therefore they're going to act on what you teach them, and they're going to get the results. So conviction is super important and super necessary, not just to actually effectuate the sale, but actually to help the client get the result. Absolutely. Well, it's funny. I work with a lot of clients in the kind of the high-tech space, and most of these clients have a, a kind of a sales cycle that lasts for a, you know, a certain amount of time. Uh, you know, there's various stages. First, you get a demonstration of the solution. Then we have to meet your stakeholders. Then we give you pricing. And then there's a proposal and all these kind of various steps. And one of the things that we talk about is this idea of, so I, I'm a scientist by education, so I always go back to science examples, but it's, uh, science and Seinfeld, so to speak. Is, uh, <laughs> I love it. Good alliteration. Is, is, is uh, this concept of escape velocity. And uh, the idea of escape velocity is, you know, when you throw something up uh, into the air, it comes back to earth. Uh, but if you threw something into the air fast enough, it would escape the gravitational pull of the earth and go into orbit. Now that, that speed in the case of the earth, I think it's like 11 kilometers per second. So it's actually very, very fast. But the idea of like when you're selling something, you don't just want someone to necessarily lean in and say, oh yeah, tell me more about this. And certainly that's a good first step. You want to propel them through the remainder of the sales cycle, right? You want them to know what it means to say yes to this thing that you're proposing and get through not only the introductory call, but you know the demo, the proposal, the pricing, the whole thing, because they have such high conviction. And, and you experience this in a very micro way. I say you, I mean most of us. When we're, let's say, we download like an app 
on our phone or on our computer. And then we go through like the terms of service and we just click yes, 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 set up, set up, set up, set up. Because we want to get to the end, right? Like we have such a high conviction that we want to get, you know, to kind of the promised land that we just kind of not necessarily, you know, buzz through all the upfront pieces. But certainly in a sales cycle, you want to create as much emotion and conviction and belief upfront to propel that person through the rest of the process. David, I could actually just let you talk and this episode would still be a spectacularly valuable episode for my listener because you're one of those people that's a joy for an interviewer because you speak in complete sentences in paragraphs you have coherent thoughts you use great examples it's just wonderful to be interviewing you my man i'm really really enjoying this so Let's delve into the cerebral selling approach a little bit more. You, you, you shared an article with me yesterday via email, and I wanted to just check it out here with you. Okay, so this article was about basically seven entrepreneurial lessons that you learned from starting your own sales practice. So let's just go through these really quickly. So the first one was your network is your net worth. Absolutely. Well, you know, when you start, you know, your business on day one, ideally, you're not just kind of sitting there in your chair, crack your knuckles and say, okay, who should I talk to, to kind of, you know, release my big, amazing idea into the world. And that kind of goes back to my first point, which is this idea that, you know, you should start a business that is related to something that maybe you've already done in the past versus just an idea that you came up with, right? So you're not starting from scratch. And I had the benefit of being in, you know, B2B tech sales for almost 20 years. So when I started my business, I had, you know, a, a great network of people, of, of leaders, of CEOs and, and sales leaders and so on that I could go out to and, you know, position, you know, some help. Um, so that was kind of the, the network is your net worth, certainly in terms of people. But, you know, on that note, one of the other things that I, I did and I, you know, I'd love to say that this was some kind of grand design, but it wasn't. I was just doing it uh, uh, because it was my passion, which is point number two in the article I wrote yesterday, which is your content should help you scale. And one of the things that, you know, I, I always loved to do was learn. Learning was the number one thing I love to do, still is. And when I learn something new and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is great, especially in the world of sales, because I'm trying to stamp out crappy sales reps and old school tactics that ruin it for the good ones, good people, right? I would write it down. I would create a video. I would create an article. And I've been doing this for years, even predating my business. You know, I've been writing for about five years now. My business is just a year old. And the idea behind creating content at scale was great because it helped me build the network, right? When people, when you put something out there into the universe and it's helpful and people read your stuff, your network grows. And so when you when people out there are thinking about well what is their network? Your network isn't just people that you've worked with in the past or maybe you you met in person at a conference or so you know your friends and so on. Certainly that is super important. But you know you should be putting your vibe out there into the world to the extent that you can and building that, you know, that audience, that customer base, that fan base, that network at scale. So when you need it, it's there and those people will have already experienced the value you add because you did it with reciprocity, with no intention of getting anything in return, and they will take your calls when you call them. So the network was a huge factor in uh, me starting my business, and about 60% of my revenue in year one came from my existing uh, network of people that I had knew and connected with. 
Well, that's fantastic. And then let's hop into point three, which is about maximizing the right revenue. You talked about how Marshall Goldsmith said that he only works with great leaders who want to get better. And that's why he feels confident in charging such a high fee for his work, right? And guaranteeing his work. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, the the idea, you know, think about, um, you know, if you have a business and you took on, like you make these widgets, right? And these widgets are primarily designed for people who do this certain thing with them. But then a customer comes along and says, oh, you know what, this is an interesting widget. You know, maybe I, I could use it for this other purpose. And you're like, okay. And then they come back to you and they say, but you know what, I need you to change the widget a little bit because it doesn't really suit exactly what I want to do. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll change it a bit for you. And then what happens is you just end up getting uh, bifurcated and pulled in all these you know, kind of different directions. You take on all of this business and really kind of the vision, the thing that you started with at the beginning that was supposed to be driving everything forward gets diluted. And the same thing happens in the thought leaders business and the services business, the product business. When you take on clients who don't align with your vision, with where you were looking to, you know, to, to, to push this product, with the value you can add, A, you usually don't end up delivering the value that they were hoping for. And B, it can hijack your, your roadmap. And whether it's a product roadmap, a, a content roadmap. And so really you want to work with the clients who are aligned with your mission, with your vision, with the product, with the value you can add, you know, sometimes I refer to it as like taking people's money. Like, I don't want to take people's money. Like I have, you know, lots of clients who are willing to pay me to do things for them. But if I don't think I can drive the business outcome that they're looking for, if I don't think that they're going to be a raving, excited customer and happy client at the end of the day, that's not what's going to drive my business forward, right? And I know it's tough, especially at the beginning, when you have zero revenue and you're like, I should just, you know, you know, and I, I say this at the, at the beginning because this is how I felt at the beginning of my business. When you open your doors as a thought leader, as a, you know, someone who's living your passion, you're just hoping that someone pays you to do anything, right? You know, Very true. So, <laughs> you know, Very true. So, so it's some validation. But, you know, at, at, over time I was, I was blessed with, with getting a really fast start. And I could be a little bit more choosy about the revenue I took on and the, the projects I took on. And like, you know, think about like you are as a thought leader, you are bringing the future to your customers and you work with these kinds of customers every day. So you should absolutely take their input. You should absolutely be agile and pivot where appropriate, but make sure that you're taking on the right revenue to drive your business forward. Brilliantly said. So you talked about um, the fourth point a little bit already because you spoke about how you love to learn and how important it is to love to learn and to learn how to learn. So can you expand on that a little bit and segue into point number five, because I think the, the points four and five go together, learning how to learn and making the time to learn by reading and getting smarter. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's funny. I have a, a blog post that I've, I've half written uh, because I'm trying to, to, I'm trying to finish it off and I'll explain what I mean. As a, Science and engineering guy uh, and a curious person, I am both blessed and cursed with 
the ability to learn. I love to learn and I love to learn new things. And when I learn those new things, I'm good at doing those new things. And so, especially as you, as you build your business, I can create a website, I can create content. I love to, you know, I can cook, I can rewire my kitchen, I can pay the taxes, I can do everything I need to in my business because I love to learn how to learn. Now, look, not all those things are things that necessarily I should be spending my time on. You know, there's probably time spent better doing other things, but it's the thing that I tell my kids. I said, look, the job, my father would always tell me growing up, he said, you know what? The job that you're probably going to do when you grow up hasn't been invented yet, right? And to, to a great extent, he was correct. And so that's the same thing I tell my kids. I say, the job you're going to do hasn't been invented yet. You need to learn how to learn and have a systematic approach and methodology for learning how to learn. So I, I try to reinforce that with them. And the, the reason I haven't finished my blog post is I'm trying to crystallize, okay, well, great. If learning how to learn is important, how do you do that? Which leads into number five, which is make time, at the very least, just make time to do it. Uh, it's very tough. And I use the example of reading. I'm not a, I love to read. I'm not a fast reader, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there. They're not fast readers. I'm distracted. Like a lot of people, I, I only read oftentimes when I'm on the subway or on a plane where I'm kind of, you know, captive, so to speak. Um, but as a thought leader, your mission is to bring the future again, bring that future to your clients and to always be getting smarter. And unfortunately you can absolutely get smarter by working with your customers, but that's not enough. It's not enough. You need to seek out knowledge. There's fewer people for you to learn from in your immediate sphere because you're not working necessarily at a company with people around you. And so it's important to do things like carve out time to read, carve out time to think. And I actually find that for me, one of the reasons why I love to write and I love to create videos is because it forces me to do research. It forces me to crystallize my thoughts for my clients and, you know, one of the, the, the best things, one of the biggest things I think about when I think about thought leadership is that idea of synthesis. How are you taking content and knowledge that's out there and repackaging it in a way that your customers can easily consume and it can help solve their problems? And so learning how to learn, assimilating that great content, uh, making time to read and get smarter to bring the future to your clients is something that every thought leader needs to do. No, 100%, man, 100%. And the last two points in your article around protecting your house, which is basically self-care, right? It's, 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 it's very important to do that. And then getting beyond your fear, beyond your comfort zone. And I think the two of those also go together because the only way for you to be able to get past your fear is take care of yourself to the extent that you'll, your willpower isn't degraded. There's a lot of science and research that's been done that if you are burning the candle at both ends and in the middle, your willpower actually gets diminished. Your ability to be strong gets diminished. You're not able to be focused enough on getting out of your comfort zone because you're just too utterly exhausted. Talk about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's funny. There is a uh, a chart that I use oftentimes in my training, and it is from one of my favorite books. Uh, and I have a bunch of uh, my favorite books on my website. If you go, you can check out the blog post. It's a book called The One Thing. Uh, it's called The One Thing: The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results. And one of the things it talks about, it shows this data from an Israeli parole court. And what it actually shows, I'll kind of distill it down for you. It shows that 
your percentage, your probability of a favorable judgment, you come up to, for parole in this parole court, your probability being granted b- parole, and they measured this over the course of many months, many judges and hundreds of cases, is dependent on the time of day that you get called up for your case to be heard. And when you get called up in the morning you have a very high probability of parole being granted. And when you get called up right before the morning break, your chance of getting parole is almost zero. And then it shoots back up again right after the break. And then again, same thing before lunch and after lunch and so on. And the idea is that life can wear us down. And when we have to make important decisions like who gets paroled, it requires a lot of tenacity, a lot of willpower. And willpower is like the bars on your phone, you know, you're the battery. Like once it wears down, it's down and it's zero. And you can't bring it back up unless you do things like sleep, eat, indulgence, playtime, whatever it is for you. And you all experience this. And I say you all, everyone listening, you all experience this every day when you come home at the end of a long day and you say to yourself, you know what I deserve, Right. It's never anything good, right? Your default judgment is a beer, a cheeseburger, a pizza, whatever it is, because that's how we replenish it. And so when I say protect the house, I mean, if you want to be sharp and you want to be making tough decisions, big decisions, helping your clients unstick their toughest problems, the problems they couldn't solve on their own, otherwise, why would they be calling you? You need that willpower, right? You need that mental tenacity. And the way we we replenish it, I say protect the house, exercise, going to the gym, family time, you know, even watching TV and relaxing, all very important uh, in the process of, of making good decisions and building your business. Brilliantly said, my man. Brilliantly said. I really love this blog post. And uh, I think that... Um, my listener would very much benefit from this. So we'll definitely post it up in the show notes so they can access it. And I took a look at your reading list. It's a great reading list too. We need David Premer's book out pretty soon. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on it. Actually, I had a conversation with the publisher earlier this week about doing, but that's, it's actually part and parcel of, you know, one of the things I said at the outset, which is you have to build your network at scale. And for me, writing a book is a, as a, you know, I've written tons, dozens of articles and videos. It's a bucket list thing. Um, but also it's one of those ways that I can help build, uh, you know, a, a great network at scale. Yep. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. So David, the person who is our listener, they typically are a thought leader, a coach or a consultant, right? And most of them listen to this show because They want to find out from you, our guest, and from me, the host, what are the tips, tricks, hacks that they can implement in their life and in their business to take them to the next level? Okay. So very simply put, what are your top three expert action steps that you recommend our listener take on to become better at selling from the heart? to be able to grow their business, and to have a more empowered life. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the three things I think about, the first one is, as I mentioned earlier, pick something that you're passionate about. You know, one of the the authors and speakers that I look up to and like the most is uh, Simon Sinek. And I know there's a lot, of Simon, so, there's a lot of Simon Sinek fans out there. It's funny, I have a, uh, stay tuned, I have a video coming out. I uh, have a signed 
flip chart that Simon Sinek did at a conference that I got to meet him and I, I uh, have it on the wall in my office behind me and I put uh, put a little video together because people always ask me, what's that thing behind me? But so Simon Sinek, he says, you know, people always ask him, how do you become such a good speaker? And he jokes and he says, uh, I cheat. I only pick things that I, I only speak about things that I'm passionate about and things that I understand. And so my first piece of advice is choose something you're passionate about, right? If you are not passionate about it, you cannot easily manifest the conviction needed uh, to describe what you do, then no one will believe you. So number one, choose something you're passionate about. Number two, I would say keep learning. And, you know, the idea of even reading a book, okay, I have all sorts of stats on my website that say 43% of people who graduate from college will never read another book in their life. That's <laughs> in insane. It's insane, right? And and even people who do read might only read, you know, a book a year, a couple books a year. So if you just carve out some time to read, and I say read, it could be listening to, to podcasts or books on tape or whatever have you, right? Carve out that time because I say just keep learning. A lot of people don't keep learning. So if you just keep learning a little bit, you're going to be ahead of the pack and you will be bringing the future to your clients. So that's number two, just keep learning. And then number three and you know, I'm, uh, you know, in, in a way, I, I, I deeply believe in this, which is just add value and try to add value at scale. And so what I mean by that is, again, like I try to, and again, I, just because this worked for me, I'm not saying, oh, it's going to work for everyone. One of the things I love to do is I love to write. I love to create content because I have things in my head and I have to get those things out. And I believe that those things will be helpful for people. And I'm very thoughtful about what I craft. I don't just put out an article that's like 500 words and just like, you know, here you go. What do you think? Like my articles are typically longer form. I put a lot of, of effort into them. It takes me a long time to craft them um, because I, I believe that they're going to add value and they're going to help me add value at scale um, and help kind of build that audience, build that movement that I'm trying to, to build. I am, I'm on a mission, not just to build my business. Building my business will be a, a byproduct of me achieving, you know, this, this mission, which, you know, will probably never be achieved in my lifetime, but, but just the, the act of trying to pursue it. And so I would say, you know, to all the aspiring thought leaders out there, try to figure out how to add value to your community, to the people who are trying to solve the problem that you solve at scale, put the vibe out there. I get tons of emails, tons of, of notes from people saying, Hey, look, I caught your article. I caught your video. I've been sharing it with my people. I don't even know in other countries around the world saying we find it super valuable. And I don't pounce on them and say, great, we should be doing business together. I say, thank you so much. It's very gratifying. And it keeps me doing it uh, more and more and more. So I would say those three, choose something you're passionate about, keep learning and just add value at scale. Wow. That was awesome. So, listener, David Premier is the real deal. You need to go to his website, CerebralSelling.com. It'll be in the show notes. You need to subscribe to his newsletter. You need to watch his videos on YouTube. You need to consume the content this man puts together because what he has to share is brilliant. It's going to be helpful to you when you're out there trying to make your dent in the universe because what David has to teach you is going to allow you to scale your expertise. It's going to allow you to reach more people. And that's the reason God put you here on this earth so that you could share your gifts with the largest number of people possible. And here's another thing I want to say to you, listener, okay? You might be a thought leader 
You might be a coach or a consultant who really wants to grow your business, but you hate selling. You don't know how. And you don't know who you can trust to show you how to do it because there's a lot of people out there who frankly are the type of slimy salesman or slimy sales girl that David was talking about. These are the folks that sell in a very uh, yucky and inauthentic way. And here's what I want to tell you. Here at eCircle, we have a unique program, a unique methodology that's helped a majority of our members grow their businesses to six figures, even seven figures a year. And when you join our program, you'll learn how you can sell without selling and your money worries are going to be over, okay? So here's what I want to say to you. If, if you want to know how to be like David Premier, how to be this preeminent thought leader that is able to sell without selling, is able to sell in a way that shares love in the world, but you really don't know how to do it, jump on a call with us. Go to our website, eastercoldacademy.com. Click on the button in the top right-hand corner that says, book your success call now. That's a complimentary call. You'll be on the phone with myself or a member of my team, and we will show you step-by-step exactly how you can do this, how you can be a thought leader out there who is growing and scaling your impact and your business without selling the way that people conventionally sell. Okay. David, thank you so much for being on the show today, man. You really add a lot of value. I learned a ton, and I know that my listener is going to learn a ton. My pleasure, Nikki. Always great to join you. Oh, come back anytime, brother. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, David Premier, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. And to jump on a call with myself, or a member of my team to find out how you, as a thought leader, can grow your business. Even if you hate selling, go to eastercoldacademy.com forward slash appointment or click on the button in the top right-hand corner. Until next time, goodbye.